message. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, attitude is everything? Anybody ever heard that? Someone say, it's all about your attitude. Have you ever noticed how when you like doing something, uh, it goes a lot better than if you don't like doing something? You know what I mean? It's all in the attitude, right? And I believe that goes with anything that we do. I believe attitude has a lot to do with it. Um, And and especially even when it comes to us uh, thinking about missions, Attitude is everything, and today we want to look at attitude, and this is the first power shift that we're going to look at. You know, the Apostle Paul, he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, he said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was, and was born of a human being. When he, when he appeared in human form. Um, so, one thing, when, when he appeared in human form, our ability to make a lasting change in everything that we do, it depends largely on our attitude. If you got a bad attitude, what happens? You don't put a whole lot of effort into it, right? If you've got a good attitude, you're excited about it, you can't wait, it's going to be something that you want to do. So our attitude uh, uh, can, can uh, uh, change how we do things. It can affect how we do things, even in ministry, it comes to missions or whatever. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. But we're, you know, um, one thing that we're going to look at is one thing that Jesus did is Jesus... Uh, created a servanthood mentality, and he gave us a great example. Jesus was the the best example of servanthood, and if you look at what Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty three eleven, he says, "The greatest among you will be your servant." So, our text today is Jesus showing us an example of service. And if you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of John. I want to read. A story to you from chapter 13. Book of John, chapter 13. And he says this. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, that's something I want you to understand real quickly. Judas had not gone to betray Jesus yet, okay? And I believe that's something important for us to understand here, is that he knew that Simon, Jesus knew that Simon was going to go do what he was going to do. He's already pretty much been in talks with the religious leaders, about what he was going to do, but he had not gone and done it yet. Okay, verse 3. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. In other words, he was referring to to, uh, um, uh, Judas. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. If I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, the example that Jesus is showing us here is he is a strong individual who chose to serve rather than be served. That's what Jesus was about. Jesus was about serving. If you look at verses 3 through 5 again, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, there's a little word in verse 4. It's a little bitty tiny word, and it's so extremely important for us to understand. But that little word is so, S-O. So is like a hinge on which the rest of this passage hangs. It implies that Jesus' understanding of his power undergirded his desire and ability to serve. So in short, this passage says, Jesus knew and so he washed. Jesus knew what he was supposed to do and so he served his disciples He wanted to be an example for them. He wanted to set forth so that they could see what it was like. As great and as wonderful and as magnificent as Jesus was, he humbled himself so that they could see the servanthood of who he was and what he meant for them to become. Jesus was the model servant, and he showed his servant attitude to his disciples. You know, something we don't ever think about because we don't need it here. We wear shoes to protect our feet, right? And we even wear socks to protect it from 
the shoes. And, and, and so we don't think about this, but foot washing, it was very common during Bible times. People traveled mostly on foot and sandals across the dusty roads of Judea. And when entering a home, it was customary to wash one's feet. I mean, can you imagine if everybody came to your house and you said, hey, come on in. Let me, let's wash your feet first, you know. Uh, that's some, uh, you know, you're like, Nate, no way, right? Well, you're so glad that, that custom went out the window, right? It's, it's gone. We don't have to do that no more. Uh, but if you did not offer to wash a guest's feet, that was considered a breach of hospitality. That was just a no-no. You just didn't do that. You, you offered to wash their feet. Washing guest's feet, this was a job for a household servant, and they would carry out when guests arrived. It was a, a subservient task. This was a, a very, uh, as you can imagine, this was the low, one of the lowest tasks that you could probably do. But what was unusual about this act was that Jesus, the master and teacher, was doing it for his disciples. As the lowliest slave would do, Jesus was giving them an example. And then then what did Jesus do in verses 14 and 15? He tells us. He says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So you see, Jesus is showing them. He's giving them an example. He's saying, this is what you should do. We should be about serving one another. We should be about serving each other so that we can fulfill and, and, and accomplish what the kingdom of God wants us to accomplish. But we must choose to serve those who are lost and to disciple and nurture those in the church. The result of that kind of attitude adjustment is going to unleash a power shift. And it's so important because our attitudes will change towards the people when we become servants for those that we want to reach and those that we want to minister to. It's going to make a difference and it's going to make a change not only in your life but in the life of those that you are going to serve. If you look at Scripture, you're going to find that there are three kinds of servants from biblical Greek. Now, you know me, I'm not a Greek scholar and I never claim to pronounce these correctly, but I'm going to do my best this morning. And uh, I've practiced these and tried to get them correctly. And uh, so we're going to give it a shot. The first one is doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. A doulos slave was bound to his master so closely that only death can break the yoke. Romans chapter 6 uses this term to offer a metaphor for our enslavement to sin. Look at Romans 6, uh, verses 16 through 18. It says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart, the pattern of teaching uh, that has now claimed your allegiance. Um, 
Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So the picture here comes from the culture of the day. And this is something that I thought was interesting. A convicted murderer, they would be bound to the dead victim and sentenced to carry around the body. The resulting decay eventually would kill the murderer as well. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe we should put this back into play. I don't know. It might have a few less murders, right, if they're having to carry around their victims all the time. Uh, but it, the, the decay would be so bad that it would end up, it would end up killing the uh, murderer as well. And Paul challenged us to die to sin, for that's the only way, that's the only, that, that is the only release, and to be bound instead of to Christ. So that's the example here. The dualist, you would be bound to that uh, person as a servant. You'd be bound to the person that was over you. So what Paul was telling us, we have two choices. You can either be bound to sin or you can be bound to Christ. I would prefer to be bound to Christ, amen? I don't, we, don't, we don't need to let sin control us, but we need to be a, a, uh, uh, bound to Christ and, and, and uh, uh, connected to him. The second one, and this diakonos, the diakonos, I, you know, I've tried different ways of saying this, but diakonos, that's the second one, D-I-A-K-A-O-N-O-S. And the English word deacon comes from this word. And this individual attends to the needs of another. Now, while doulas generally refers to a servant in relationship to his master, diakonos stresses the servant's relationship to his work. Go to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as you can see, Jesus was referring that that's what he had come to do, had come to serve, not for people to serve him, but he had come to this earth to serve others. And the third one is huperitus, huperitus. And this word literally translated is under oarsmen. In uh, Roman sailing vessels, there would be helmsmen and rowers, and the (laughs) huperitus, were the ones, yeah, anybody want to try saying that? Uh, who performed uh, the hardest work for every time they drew their oars, they would put them into the very teeth of the waves. Acts thirteen thirty six uses this form. It says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. So, David understood God's will. The king of Israel humbled himself and chose to become an under oarsman, taking on the hardest and least honored role he could imagine. So when you look at the ministry and the life of Jesus, 
you can see that Jesus was a servant in all three of these ways. He showed himself as a duelist when he bound himself to us, taking on human form and experiencing the pain and disappointment of life on earth, dying our death, and he rose again for our salvation and God's glory. He revealed himself as diaconos when he fed people and when he ministered healing. And though Paul chose to use a different word, Jesus demonstrated the characteristics of a hyperitus when he, as Philippians 2.8 puts it, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So, as our jo- so our job as believers is to live as Christ lived. Amen? That's what we, we call ourselves Christians. The beginning of that form of that word that makes that word is Christ. Christ is literally in the word. Being a Christian means that we are to become like Christ. That's who we are to be. And Jesus humbled himself. He came down to earth to serve, not to be served. And so we have to humble ourselves as believers, and we have to go, and we have to be Christ-like, be who Christ called us to be. And you see, here's the thing that we've got, and I've said this for the last few weeks. Jesus loves people, right? Don't you agree? And people matter to God. Amen? And if people matter to God, then they need to what? They need to matter to us. And that's why as believers, we have to humble ourselves and be who God called us to be. And we humble ourselves so that we can serve those that need to come to Christ. So how does God want us to apply the principle of servanthood in our mission's effort. Well, he's given us the overall picture, and now he wants to give us a specific plan that will enable us to multiply the power available in servanthood for an explosive harvest. I would love to see an explosive harvest, amen, in our lives, in the lives of our church, in the lives of our country, Around the world, it would just be amazing to see people just coming and repenting and, and, and just seeing God doing a work in the hearts and lives of individuals. Well, there's three ways for us to apply the principle of servanthood in our missions effort. Number one, we have to lose the holier-than-thou mindset as believers. Amen? We are not better than any other people group. It doesn't matter if someone is saved or not. It doesn't matter if someone is red, yellow, black, or white. And I love what the song says. They're precious in his sight, right? It doesn't matter if they live in a mansion in Beverly Hills or a shack in the Ozark Mountains. It doesn't matter if they live in our own backyard or on an island off the coast of Australia. They are people, and they matter to God, so they better matter to us. Amen? And we are not better than them. As believers, the only, the only difference in us and them is, is if, if they have not asked Jesus to be their Savior, is we have that going for us. And we have the greatest thing in the world, amen? That's salvation. 
So why wouldn't we want to share it with everybody? Why wouldn't we want to give them an opportunity to experience the same thing that you and I have experienced? You know, if we look through all out the world, we can see that all cultures have positive and negative points. Those who live and work in these communities, they might think that uh, we have moved well beyond a level of elitism, but, but we need to constantly examine our motives and our strategies to make sure that we don't ever harbor any superior feelings. We must not think that everything that we do is perfect because it's not perfect, amen? We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We need to be trained appropriately as ministers so that we can effectively reach the people groups that God is calling us to. Whether it's here in Fort Smith, the rest of the United States, or around the world, we must understand the world around us. We have to know the culture that's in our own backyard. We have to know who we are, who we are ministering to so that we can minister to them appropriately. So here's a question that we can ask ourselves. Does a doctor become a doctor overnight? That answer is no, right? What do they do? They go to school, then they go to medical school, and then they have to pass the test. And, and so isn't being trained as a minister in any capacity as important as being trained appropriately as a doctor? Because think about it. Serving a person's spiritual health is at least as important as serving his physical health. Amen? We need to be trained. We need to understand what God wants us to do. We have to be disciples that are being discipled so that we can in turn what? Be disciple makers, right? That's what we have to do. We have to disciple those that don't fully understand all of God's word. And we have to take the training and the understanding so that we can in turn disciple those so that they can grow in their relationship with the Lord as well. And the second way for us to apply the principle of servanthood in our missions effort is sustainability. You know, some people have a negative attitude about the Great Commission. They tend to ask a question like they say, you know, we have so many problems in our own community or our country. Why do we need to send money and some of our best people to other countries? Well, here's the short answer, and this is the best I got. Because Jesus told us to. That's all I got. That's the best answer that I can give you. Why do we send people around the world? Why do we send missionaries around the world? Why do, why do we send them into these unreached areas? Because Jesus told us to. Why do we go into our own, into, our, into not just our backyards, but into, you know, maybe places outside of our backyards, like the rest of part of the United States, into areas where people haven't heard the gospel maybe? What do we, why do we do that? Because Jesus told us to. Why? Because people are important to Jesus, and if they're important to him, they need to be important to us. Amen? And so we have to do what we can do to go into all the world and to preach the gospel and to tell people about the love of Jesus. Remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He said to make disciples of all nations. And if you were to look up that word nations in the Greek, you would see that it is ethne, E-T-H-N-E, or people groups. There are over 16,000 people groups in the world, and over 7,000 of them are unevangelized. 
And we got to understand these are these groups are the main targets of completing the Great Commission. Here's the way I look at it. As soon as we complete the Great Commission, Jesus is coming back. So that should raise our efforts more than anything, right? How many ever thinks, how many ever sit there and just stops and thinks for a moment and says, well, man, I sure do hope Jesus comes back soon. I'd love for Jesus to come back. I'm ready for Jesus to come back. The world's getting bad. It's getting rough out there. Can I tell you that there's still 41% of people that have not heard the gospel? And he says that every nation and tribe is going to be represented in heaven. And so we have to do our part. Whatever it is, if it's sending missionaries to these unreached groups, if it's putting resources into their hands, whatever it is, we have to do our part so that we can see that the world is saved and we can do our part in helping complete the great commission. It might be through prayer. It might be giving. It might be sending out missionaries, not just to our communities, but also to these unreached parts of the world. And when we do this, we are serving both the Lord and those who have never heard the gospel. We have to understand and appreciate that it takes the whole body of Christ working together in cooperation with one another to accomplish completing the Great Commission. We will need to find the strategies and methodologies that will work to complete the Great Commission. And finally, the third way for us to apply the principle of servanthood in our missions effort is positive synergy, synergism. Now, some of you are thinking, what is that? Because I had to look it up. I'm not a very smart scientific person. But we need the whole church in dynamic unity to reach the whole world And we must move from negative synergism to positive synergism. And I'm going to explain what that means. I'm going to give you a science lesson. Are you ready? Synergism occurs when someone puts two chemicals together and their interaction produces a greater result together than would have happened if either had worked alone. Kind of like, and this is the only thing that came to my mind. I'm sure there's better examples than this, but kind of like when you have, when you take Tylenol by itself, you know, it takes care of just aches. Or you can go get that pill that has, you know, Tylenol sinus or whatever. Usually it means it has Benadryl in it. So not only does it take away your headache, but it also takes away any sinus issues that you may have. And it also helps you sleep pretty good, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, anytime you see the one with the PM next to it, usually it's got some Benadryl in there and it'll give you a good night-night, you know. But uh, anyway, that's the only thing that I could think of. The two together are better than just the one. And so if you look at it this way, God has a way of releasing new actions in the spiritual realm as well. And the purpose for those actions, it depends on us. Amen? So an, an example of negative synergisms found in Deuteronomy 32.30 And and real quickly, it just says, how could one man chase a thousand or two, put 10,000 to flight unless the rock had sold them, unless the Lord had given them up? In this example, God gave up on these people. He quit giving them his wisdom and direction because they wouldn't listen. 
their enemies were able to defeat them because of the synergistic effect of God's discipline and judgment. Now look at an example of positive synergism. It's found in Leviticus 26.8. And it says, five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase 10,000 and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. See, when God's people unite, that's a key word there, unite as a team, the results of their efforts are multiplied by the results of positive synergism. Now, notice the mathematical power shift, excuse me, revealed in this verse. And also, understand Solomon knew about this too. He, he got it right. If you look at Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, he says two are better than one. Do you agree? Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I want you to understand this. This is something really important that we as believers need to understand. There is no way that we will ever be able to complete the Great Commission if our attitudes are not aligned with what God wants us to do and the part he wants us to play. Each group has a part to play. Can I tell you, each church has a part to play in this river valley. We all have to do our part. We can't, we can't bash one another. We can't look down at one another. Everybody has their part they have to play, and everybody has to do their part in order to reach this city for, the, for God. Now, let's take it on a broader scale here. Every church in this country has to do their part. We can't win the United States by ourselves. It would take, it would, we, it's impossible. There's no, we, I don't care how big of uh, arenas you pack out. It can't, we, one person can't do it. One church can't do it. It's going to take all of us doing our part. Now let's go to even greater scale. What is it Christ told us to do? He said what? Go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say, hey, I just want this one church. We're, you know, just the church here in Jerusalem is going to go out. They're the only ones. No, because you see, it started a pattern. What happened? He told his disciples, and they went started ministering. You can see it in the book of Acts that one of the greatest lessons in multiplication is found in the book of Acts. The first thing he told them is says, he says, you're going to go wait for the comforter. He's, or you're going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And he's going to give you power. When you receive that power, you'll be able to go and be my witnesses. And what was the first thing that they did? Peter come out of the upper room and he says, hey, listen up. We're not drunk like you think. You know, and then he starts talking about it and starts talking about Christ. And, starts, and there were people that got saved that day. And then they started going all throughout. And you can see it all throughout the book of Acts. And you see where people, and we're talking thousands of people were getting saved, were 
were committing their lives to Christ. So now here we are, 2,000 years later, and what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be continuing on what they started. And we have a job to do. We have a job to do, whether it's people in our community, in our own backyard, in our neighborhoods, across the street, wherever they may be, we have a job to minister to them. But it don't stop there. Then we have to also reach out. You know, he said, he said you'll, be, uh, you'll be by witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, and Samaria, and to what? The ends of the earth. In other words, he said, he didn't tell them just to go to your backyards. He said, no, I want you to, to go, and then I want you to branch out, and I want you to start and continually. And so as we are doing the, the work that Christ has told us to do, we are to be the witnesses. We are to help send missionaries out. And our attitude has to change from one of thinking that we have arrived to one thinking, I need to serve. Jesus said, I have come to serve, not to be served. And so we have to be uh, who Christ has called us to be, and we have to want to serve and minister and do the work of the ministry that God has called us to do. We have to come together to do our part. Two working together is better than one. Today, today we've seen that the basic biblical attitude of ministry is a servanthood mentality. We talked about three words in the original Greek that highlight this. First, the doulos shows that we should be submitted to Christ and loyal to God's word, that nothing can break this relationship. Second, diaconus speaks of the outworking of a relationship with Christ by serving the needs of others. And third, huperitus uh, refers to an attitude of, of obedience to any task, even one of great sacrifice that we are called by God to do. We have to be totally submitted to Christ and his word. We have to be eager servants to others and committed to the sacrificial lifestyle that was modeled by Jesus. So I want to encourage you this week, find ways to get in the word. Study God's word. Find out what servanthood was like. Let me encourage you this week. Go and just look up servanthood. Find uh, if you got a, a concordance in the back of your Bible, see if you can find the word servanthood and read scriptures on, on being a servant, seeing what Jesus was. Go into the, the four Gospels and find where Jesus talked about serving. But I also want you to find ways to serve someone this week. It could be fixing a meal for someone. It, it could be mowing someone's lawn. Maybe it's going and getting someone's groceries, whatever it is, find ways to serve those that you can. This week, I'll be serving at kids' camp. (laughs) And I promise you, this is not a week of vacation. Now, I do enjoy it, and I enjoy going, but it is definitely not a relaxing time. And I, But my prayer is, and I'm doing this, because you know why? I want to see those kids changed at a young age so that they can become disciple makers someday and to fulfill the calling that God may be placing upon their life at a young age. You know, I remember my memories of kids camp. And you know what a lot of my memories were? It was in those altars. It was in those altars crying out to God. 
and God doing a thing in my life. And it's so cool. One of the coolest things is they do, there's a song they do and they'll at kids camp and they'll, they'll stop, they'll, the worship team will stop singing and you'll hear all those kids just singing that song. And it's the song, I believe in God the Father. And they, and they sing all the words and, they're, and you're just sitting there listening to it. Man, it just, I get goosebumps upon goosebumps when I hear it. Why? Because these kids are making that proclamation. And you know, and that's something that it's going to change their life. So why do I go to kids camp? I go, to, if I can make a difference in one student's life, if I can get him in bed soon enough so that he can get up and have a great time the next day, or if I can sit there and say, you know, you can't go to the bathroom just yet. Go, go back and sit down. You know, I mean, there's things that you'll say, or you get a kid that says, man, I want to go home. I'm tired. I, I want to go home and see my mama. I'm, I'm you know, I'm uh, homesick. You tell them, well, let's just tough it out for, uh, give me one more hour and we'll talk. Give me two more hours and we'll talk. Why? Because there's a chance that something's going to make a difference in their life, and that's why we do it. So why do we serve? Why do we give up ourselves? Why do we volunteer? Why do we do the things that we do? Because Christ came to serve, and we want to be like Christ, and so therefore we must serve so that we can see the kingdom filled. Amen? Amen. Can we pray? Lord, I just thank you, God. I thank you for this time that we can have been here today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the life that that you have poured out to us and that you have given us an example of how to live, how to be, and what we are to be. And God, I just pray right now for every individual that's here, God, I pray that there be a, a heart transfer today, heart change today, this week, that they want to be more like you. God, I pray that, that they would get into the word more this week. They would become what you want them to become. They would seek what you want them to, to receive. And God, we give you praise and we give you glory. And we thank you and we magnify you. Hallelujah. Lord, we want to serve you. Lord, we want to know you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, I praise you. Just take a moment, just begin to begin to talk to him. Maybe tell him what's on your mind.
saving grace Is there anybody else here that needs prayer this morning? You say, I just want to touch from God. God's doing a work in some lives this morning. So if you're here and you say, I just, I just, I just want to touch from God, I want to pray for you this morning. Is there anybody else? And you can just stand where you're at and I'll come to you. Uh, is there anybody here? Hallelujah. Can we just pray? Lord, we just come to you. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your strength. We thank you for your love and what you're doing in our church, God, how you're encouraging individuals, how you're bringing healing to their bodies, how you're moving in their lives and in their heart. And so, God, we come before you and we praise you and we give you glory and we thank you, Lord. 
Lord, we thank you. We want to worship you, Lord. We want to praise you. We want to honor you today. We magnify your name, oh God. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. We worship and we praise you, Lord. We give you glory and honor. Hallelujah. 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 Lord, we praise you, Lord. We praise you. Listen. Mm-hmm. 